The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The night before our Lord went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal was originally established in the Old Testament at the time of the Exodus event, and it was designed in the context of the Old Testament to be a picture, a foreshadowing of what would take place at the cross. It involved a lamb that was without spot or blemish. That lamb was first taken on the 10th of the month and was examined for four days to make sure that it was um, without spot or blemish, qualified in order to um, use it for a sacrifice. Then it was sacrificed, and at Passover, the blood was uh, spread on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door, and if you connect the dots it uh, would be in the shape of a cross. All of that foreshadowed what would take place some 1,400 years later when our Lord Jesus Christ would come to fulfill the uh, analogy of the type. You have his life where, and, and three years of ministry in which he is examined and discovered that he is without spot or blemish. He was without sin. He was impeccable, therefore qualified to go to the cross. What's the matter with the sound? What? We got it, you got it figured out? Okay. The lamb was without spot or blemish. And so Jesus Christ was, was impeccable. He was without sin. And scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. So each element in the Passover meal, which involved the uh, bitter herbs, which was a reminder of their the Jewish slavery in Egypt, but by application it is a picture of the bitterness of slavery to sin. The lamb pictures the sacrifice that was necessary to pay the price for sin, and the bread represented the uh, was foreshadowed the person of Jesus Christ. It was unleavened bread, leaven. In the Old Testament, New Testament represents sin. And the fact that the bread was unleavened represented the fact that the body of Christ would be without sin. He would be sinless. The cup represents his blood, which is the sacrifice. The blood itself is not efficacious, but is merely a picture of what takes place in the spiritual realm because we know that the penalty for sin is spiritual death, not physical death. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually at that instant. He did not die physically for another 900 years. Physical death, along with many other physical manifestations, physical problems, is a consequence of the penalty, but is not the penalty itself. And perhaps the greatest consequence of sin is the penalty of physical death. Therefore, in Jesus' physical death and resurrection, he demonstrates not only that he has solved the sin problem through his substitutionary spiritual death, but that he can solve every other problem that we face, the greatest of which is physical death. And if he can solve the greatest problem we'll face, he can solve every other problem that we face. So the Lord had Passover with the disciples, and he gave new meaning to the elements of the uh, Passover meal. He assigned new meaning to the bread. The bread would represent uh, his body and the bearing of sin uh, in his body on the cross, and the cup would represent the sacrifice that took place on the cross. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul uh, further warned the Corinthians that uh, they were coming to the Lord's table using it as an opportunity to get drunk and have an orgy. In the early church, they had a meal usually associated with the Lord's table, not simply the two elements that we have. And so they would use that as an opportunity to get drunk, which indicates that they were not using grape juice. They were using wine. And uh, so the Apostle Paul said, For this reason many among you are weak and sickly. 
It's necessary, therefore, for you to examine yourselves before you come to the Lord's table. So we are to, and we, it is our custom to always precede the Lord's table with a few moments of silent prayer. Give us opportunity to use 1 John 1-9 to make sure that we are in fellowship and that our attitude is correct in coming to the Lord's table. Uh, during the time of the Lord's table, it's an opportunity for us to reflect upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross for each one of us. It is a time to remember what Christ did. That is the focus. He said we are to do these things in memory of him. We are to uh, reflect upon what he did on the cross and be reminded of that all that we have is due to God's, uh, God's grace. So it is our custom here that communion is for every believer. You do not have to be a member of any particular church because at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you are a member of the universal church, the body of Christ, and that is the only prerequisite for taking the Lord's table. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, during which time I'll have uh, the deacons who are serving uh, come forward, and then I'm going to ask Dave Tongren, after a few moments of silent prayer, Dave Tongren, to give thanks for the bread. Let's pray.
Jesus then took the bread, and having broken it, said to his disciples, This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Ken Tibiash to return thanks for the cup, please.
This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for the freedoms that we have. We pray that you would continue to preserve those freedoms. We pray that you would continue to give wisdom to our leaders, military leaders, political leaders. Father, we pray for us as a church that we might continue to be responsive to your word and make it the number one priority in our lives, knowing that apart from your word there is no spiritual growth and our spiritual life becomes useless unless we are advancing under the teaching ministry of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today, that we may respond to the challenge that the Holy Spirit gives to each of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after the first hour, I know this is going to be a letdown. You know, for those of you who weren't here in the first hour, we're starting our series in 1 Corinthians 7, a little sub-series on love, sex, marriage, and divorce. And this morning it was sex for the glory of God, so... Now you know what you missed, you'll want to get the tape. This hour we're going to look at, go back to a verse we began and we focused on last week and a section just because I want to deal with a particular problem that is um, typical today in terms of confusion over the gospel and what is necessary for salvation. So let's go back and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, we'll start with verse uh, 10 in order to pick up the context. So let's go back to verse 9 to pick up the context. The context is talking about witness or testimony, and the witness that has been mentioned in verses 7 and 8 is the witness of the Father and the witness, uh, and the witness of the Father and the Spirit, which took place at the baptism by John the Baptist, and the witness that took place at Christ's death both of which revealed uh, certain elements when the Father spoke from heaven at the baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, at the crucifixion when the skies were darkened and the, uh, God the Father turned his back on Jesus Christ and then uh, affirmed and recognized his uh, payment for sin through the resurrection. Those gave physical evidence as to who Jesus Christ is and what his mission was, and that he was the Messiah. And so John reminds his readers that there is objective data demonstrating uh, who Jesus Christ is. Then in verse 9 he said, If we receive the witness of men, that is, if we receive the witness of, of human beings, and that is the apostles and others who had seen Jesus, had touched him, had heard uh, what he said, if we receive the witness of men, that is, the apostles, he goes on to say the witness of God is greater. That is, what God objectively said from heaven and um, at the baptism, the resurrection, if that's greater than the witness of the apostles. He says, for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Then in verse 10 he said, he who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. And the emphasis is not simply on believing in Jesus at salvation, but as we'll see in verse 13, continuing to believe in Jesus after salvation, because that was the problem that they faced from the false teachers. So he says, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And in a sense, you could almost draw a parenthesis around verse 10 that it's sort of a side comment, because he says, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. We're not really told what the witness is until verse 11. 
verse that is familiar to everyone here. So the witness is internalized by faith alone in Christ alone. What is the witness? The testimony, verse 11, that God has given us eternal life. So if we believe in the Son of God, if we trust in Christ as Savior, then we have this witness in us, which is eternal life. God's life becomes our life. We are regenerate. We are become children of God, and that life manifests itself. So that becomes another testimony to uh, uh, the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, one of the key issues that has arisen in the recent debates over the gospel is over the meaning of faith. That's what we see again in verse 13. See, verse 10, he who believes in the Son has the witness. He who does not believe uh, God has made him a liar. And then in verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This has raised the question as to what is the nature of saving faith. This is a crucial question, which is at the core of the debate between what is called lordship salvation, the lordship gospel, and, or rather, or the free grace gospel. It's unfortunate, but too often true, that we tend to reduce the, the, our understanding of these issues, or at least our definition of lordship salvation, to simply meaning that lordship salvation means that you have to make Christ Lord of your life, or someone who says, no, you, you have to commit yourself or commit your life to Christ, as opposed to faith alone in Christ alone. Too often these phrases are almost become slogans, and that defines a position. In fact, there are people I know who are, I believe, into various forms of what I would call soft lordship. You'll run into them. Uh, if you dialogue with anybody about the gospel or about doctrine, uh, who may not believe that, that you have to make Christ Lord of your life in order to be saved, but they're just as much in the Lordship camp. They may not agree with everything uh, your stronger advocates of Lordship salvation hold, but they will uh, fall apart when it comes to truly understanding grace. The question that I have that I ask in order to really clarify the issue, and this to me is the dividing mark, is to raise the, que- the question, the hypothetical situation, that if you're a street evangelist and you're down in the inner city somewhere, whether it's South Central Los Angeles or someplace in Chicago or uh, down in Harlem in New York or Third Ward in Houston, wherever you might be, and you are witnessing to some guy that comes along and he's a crack dealer and a pimp and engaged in other illegal activities, and this guy has zero knowledge of the Bible, never been exposed to Christianity, never been exposed to any kind of, of uh, formal religion whatsoever. The only thing he knows about Jesus Christ is it's a handy uh, curse word. And you give the guy the gospel. You explain to him that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that everybody needs is in need of salvation, and that there's nothing that anyone can do, there's nothing that he can do to save himself, but Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin that he'll ever commit uh, on the cross. It's all paid for. It's finished. All he has to do is believe it. All he has to do is accept it, and he has eternal life. And at that instant, he believes it. He says, I believe that. I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. And at that moment in time, he believes Jesus died on the cross for his sins. Next morning, he wakes up. He's still hung over from his partying the night before, because remember, he didn't get any other doctrine. All he knows is Jesus died on the cross for him. So he went on about his life that day and went out and partied that night and wakes up the next morning. He's hung over, and he says, Boy, that guy really sold me a bill of goods yesterday. How in the world did I ever get suckered into all this religious nonsense? And at that point, he goes negative, and he never again experiences or expresses any kind of interest in the truth.
in the gospel, in scripture. Never has anything to do with any other Christians, and two or three weeks later, he gets killed in a, uh, you know, gang shooting. Now, is that guy going to end up in heaven? If your answer to that question is yes, then you understand grace. You understand the gospel. If your answer to that is no, then you do not understand the gospel and you're in lordship salvation. Now, I know that there's going to be people who just heard me say that. Boy, are they going to be angry because I know a lot of people who just, even some got people who believe in free grace, just have a tough time with that scenario. Because ultimately, somewhere hidden away, down deep, buried beneath the pile, is this idea that somehow there is something in me that's going to demonstrate this new life that has to. And in other words, reality of regeneration is dependent on good works, and that's just bringing works into the back door of the gospel. It also reveals an underlying problem, and that is that they don't know what faith is. What I want to do this morning is kind of give you an idea of some of the dialogue that's going on, because this is a major battle, and I want to give you a couple of several quotes that come from uh, different sources. I'll identify the sources, but I want you to understand the kind of, of um, discussion that is going on, and primarily my examples are going to come from three individuals. John MacArthur, who's pastor of Grace Community uh, Bible Church out in uh, uh, California, who is the most popularly known spokesperson for Lordship Salvation. Also, I'm going to quote, have some quotes here from Zane Hodges, who is a Greek professor at Dallas Seminary, now uh, retired, and also Dr. Uh, Charles Ryrie, who was theolo- head of the theology department at Dallas for many years, and uh, he wrote a book called So Great a Salvation. And this is a tremendous debate that's going on, but I want you to kind of get a flavor of what these guys are really are, are really saying, and part of what will happen is that it will perhaps uh, stimulate a little perceptive uh, thinking on your own part. Now, one thing I want to note is all of these guys know Greek and Hebrew. I mean, MacArthur's got a solid theological education. He knows the original languages. Uh, of course, Prop Hodges taught Greek for years. I had him for first-year Greek at Dallas. Dr. Ryrie has his uh, doctorate from Dallas Seminary and also a doctorate from, uh, I think he went over to Edinburgh or Aberdeen. Uh, these men are not novices. Some people get the idea that if you know the Greek or you know the original languages, that's going to solve your problems. That's not true. It's going to solve some problems, and it's going to help you know what the original writings were, but that doesn't mean it clarifies everything. Look at what MacArthur says. Regarding faith, he says, forsaking oneself for Christ's sake is not an optional step of discipleship subsequent to conversion, it is the sine qua non of saving faith. Sine qua non is a Latin phrase for without which nothing. That means it's the core element. See, what he says faith is, is forsaking oneself for Christ's sake. That's what it means to believe, is to forsake yourself. Another place he says faith, as Jesus Christ characterized it, is nothing less than a complete exchange of all that we are for all that he is. That's how he defines faith. When to believe in Jesus means that you have to exchange everything you are for all that he is. In another place, in this, these are quotes all from his book, Gospel According to Jesus. He says, the faith God begets. Notice the phrase there, the faith God begets. That means, that, that's a clue right there. In MacArthur's view, in the view of most lordship people, is that the faith that saves is not the same faith you exercise when you go out in the morning and believe your car is going to start and it starts, or you wake up in the morning and you believe you still have a job that day, and lo and behold, you do still have a job that day. That Faith is faith. My position is that faith is faith. What qualifies a certain faith to be saving is not the kind of faith, but the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. But for... You're hyper-Calvinist for reform, people who believe in reform theology, most Presbyterians, um, Calvinists. For those who are into lordship, what makes it saving faith is that it's a different kind of faith, and that faith is given at salvation. It is a gift from God. When they go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, they take the it to refer to faith. 
problem is faith is a feminine noun, and the it there is a neuter uh, pronoun, and a neuter pronoun can't refer to a an antecedent or, or, or a noun that is feminine. In, in Greek, the Greek language, it's very precise. A pronoun has to agree with its antecedent in terms of case, number, and gender. So it, it can't refer to faith, but they have exegetical hoops that they jump through in order to try to prove that. So when he says the faith God begets, he's saying you don't believe God gives you the faith. The faith God begets includes both the volition and the ability to comply with his will. In other words, he, he, the faith God begets includes volition. That means he gives you the will. You don't exercise positive volition on your own. God is the one who gives you positive volition and the ability to comply with his will. In other words, faith encompasses obedience. What that means is faith includes obedience. Burkhoff, that's a well-known Reformed theologian, Louis Burkhoff, Burkhoff sees three elements to genuine faith. An intellectual element, notitia, which is the understanding of the truth. An emotional element, a census, which is the conviction and affirmation of truth. And a volitional element, fiducia, which is the determination of the will to obey truth. Modern popular theology tends to recognize notitia and often a census, but eliminates fiducia, yet faith is not complete unless it is obedient. Now, let me show you what's going on here. In classic theology, faith has been divided into these these three terms. Notitia is the Latin for understanding. So you can't believe what you don't understand. Same is true about doctrine. A lot of people think that because they can regurgitate what some pastor has said, that they understand it. That doesn't mean you can understand it any more than when I sat down in a college chemistry exam and regurgitated all that information about the periodical table that I understood it. I didn't understand it then, and I don't understand it now. But I regurgitated it, so that doesn't have anything to do with understanding. Then the second term is a census, which is the Latin for to assent, to agree with, to agree that something is true. And the last term is fiducia, which is from the Latin word fides, which means faith. Now, <clears throat> you've got two problems that have entered into theology. And, and one is that, that you have this completely screwed up idea from a world-class theologian like Burkhoff. Burkhoff was the uh, professor of theology, I think, at uh, Calvin Seminary up in uh, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and, and every, almost every seminary student has to read Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. But notice he says, Notitia, let me cut that off, Notitia is intellectual, a census is emotional, and Fiducia is volitional. So Notitia is the, in, they try to break this down, into the realm of the soul. So you, a notitia has to do with the intellectual part, a census has to do with emotion, and fiducia has to do with volition. Now that's important to under, understand this little breakdown. Because, first of all, a sense, to assent to something doesn't involve emotion. That's completely wrong. And fiducia, well, if you're going to if, if fiducia means faith, then you've said, this is what faith is. Faith is understanding, assent, and faith. Rule number one, all you parents learn this now. Those of you who are kids, you better learn it. When you define anything, you never define it by itself. Basic principle. What is, uh, what is a car? Well, a car is a, 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 a car. No, but what is it? See, faith is faith. That's what they're saying. And, See, fiducia is, is redundant. You don't define faith by faith. And our, my position is that faith, properly understood, includes un- understanding with your mind and assent, which brings in the volitional element. So you have an intellectual element and a volitional element. You agree that something is true. Ah, you agree that something is true. The important thing, as we'll see, is what is the something. 
Okay, let's go on and pick up a few other quotes. MacArthur goes on to say, And so the faithful, that is the believing, are also faithful. They are obedient. See, he defines faithful as being obedient. He, goes, he says, Fidelity, constancy, firmness, confidence, reliance, trust, and belief are all indivisibly wrapped up in the idea of believing. Notice he thinks that firmness, constancy, confidence, that's all part of believing. But that's not true. That's importing a lot of ideas into the definition. Part of the problem is that if you look at some of your what I call crutch tools that most English students who don't know Greek will go to, and even MacArthur, who knows better, goes to because it supports his position, a book like Vines, Expository Dictionary of the Greek New Testament, which is based on English words. Vines will define faith in terms of obedience and commitment. And that's just a completely erroneous idea of what faith is. In contrast, Zane Hodges writes, Faith is the inward conviction that what God says to us in the gospel is true. See, that's assent. It's the inward conviction you believe, you trust. You say, this is true. That and that alone is saving faith. Notice the difference. I mean, this is, these are poles apart. One of these guys can't be right, and one, and both of them can't be right, partially right. It can't be a semantic argument. You know, either one guy's got the gospel right, or the other guy has the gospel right. One guy is to be condemned as anathema, according to Galatians 1, or, or the other one is. But you can't just say, well, you know, this is just, let's all kind of get together and not argue about this theology. What they're saying is 180 degrees opposite each other. Furthermore, Hodges claims that MacArthur seriously distorts a well-known theological definition of faith. He adds to this, he says, this is related to MacArthur's uh, breakdown of noti- an analysis of notitia, census, and fiducia. He says, this is astoundingly inaccurate. A census is not an emotional element, and fiducia means trust and not a determination to obey the truth, as MacArthur says. Furthermore, MacArthur says that false faith lacks the tr- elements of true repentance and submission to God. In other words, if you're going to believe in the gospel, you have to be truly repentant and submit to God. Thus, for MacArthur, saving faith ought not to be defined in terms of trust alone, but also in terms of commitment to the will of God. In the absence of this kind of submission, they insisted, one could not describe his faith as biblical saving faith. After stating that... Greek readers would have understood the Greek equivalents in the same way English readers would. In other, in other words, when you hear somebody talk about believe, that's the same way a Greek reader would understand the Greek word pistis. Hodges makes a statement. Guess I don't have it up here. Hodges makes a statement. The reader most certainly would not understand this word to imply submission, surrender, repentance, or anything else of this sort. For those readers, as for us, to believe means to believe. Ryrie clarifies the issue. He states, Do these basic facts about the gospel require only a casual academic or intellectual acceptance in order for one to be saved? Not if one defines faith as the Greek dictionary does. To be convinced of something. To give credence to something. Specifically, to believe in the gospel is to put one's trust in the gospel. Being convinced of something or putting one's trust in the gospel could hardly be said to be a casual acceptance of something. When a person gives credence to the historical facts that Christ died and rose from the dead and the doctrinal fact that this was for his sins, he is trusting his eternal destiny to the reliability of those truths. You see, there is a difference between saying, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You see, there's a big difference. There's a lot of people who go to churches and they hear historical facts, they hear biblical information, and they say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. But they never make it personal. They never say, I believe Jesus is a solution for my problem of sin. And so they're just, they're not believing the correct proposition, the correct statement about faith. See, Part of the problem is that when we get into these issues is people get emotional because of certain experiences. We've all had experiences where we've known people we love and admire, 
And in some cases, they have disappointed us because of their rejection of the truth. And this is true of MacArthur's case. He tells the story about a young man that was his best friend. They grew up together. They played sports together. They went to school together. They uh, were involved in campus Christian campus organizations together out in Southern California. They do beach evangelism, and they would go out in the summer, and they would walk up and down the beaches and hand out tracts and witness to people. And then they went to college. And his buddy went to some school where he was in a classroom with a lot of intellectual assaults on Christianity. And his faith was undermined because he didn't know how to handle these assaults. And so he ends up throwing out all of his Christianity and becoming a skeptic and, a, and agnostic. And MacArthur says, he, he, he's so disturbed by this that he can't understand how someone who could be saved could do this. So the only solution then is, well, I guess he wasn't saved. You know, there's a, and that reveals a core problem here, and that is that, that in Lordship salvation, there is an underlying problem with not understanding the dynamics of the sin nature in the spiritual life. Well, Ryrie goes on in his analysis of, of MacArthur and deals also with this breakdown of, of faith, his notitia, census, and fiducia, and he goes back to Burkhoff. And in Burkhoff, relating to Burkhoff, he says, I mean, I lost my, the quote I was looking for. He says regarding Burkhoff, Burkhoff does not inject or speak to the issue of the mastery of Christ over one's life when discussing these three elements of faith. His third aspect, fiducia, concerns the involvement of the human will and personal trust in the Lord for salvation, not the commitment of the years of one's life to his mastery, which is MacArthur's position. See, MacArthur says, no one is saved simply by believing facts. The object of saving faith is not a creed. It is Christ himself. Now, I want you to look at this. This is where you're going to get a little critical thinking skills this morning. The object of faith is not a creed. It is Christ himself. Now, by creed, he means a doctrinal statement. Now, like, like uh, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in uh, Jesus, his Son, who was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified and died and was buried on the third day, uh, was buried and rose on the third day. It's not just saying, I believe that creed or I believe that doctrine. Saving. It is Christ himself. So he says the direct object of saving faith is Jesus Christ himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never met Jesus Christ. I've never seen him physically. I meet him only through the words of Scripture. And so I cannot believe Christ himself. That the words in the Scripture are Christ's words in that sense, yes. But what I am reading is the testimony of eyewitnesses. That gets right back to John's argument here in 1 John. These are eyewitness accounts of who Jesus Christ is. And what I am believing is those eyewitness accounts. I am not believing Christ. I'm believing the eyewitness accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul. That means as a result of salvation, I then have a personal relationship with Christ. But I don't start by going first to Christ. I believe words. I believe facts. I believe the saving facts that... that the gospel writers convey to us, and that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins and paid the penalty for our sins so that he is the only hope of salvation, and I need to trust him and him alone for my salvation. Those are the saving facts. And yet MacArthur says you're not simply saved by believing facts. Well, what else is there? Furthermore, he says, salvation is a gift, but it is appropriated only through a faith that goes beyond merely understanding and ascending to the truth. But he, he can't explain what that beyond is. And then he says, demons have that kind of faith. Well, no, they don't. If you look at James 2.19, it says, demons believe that God is one. Well, nowhere have I ever stated that monotheism is part of the gospel presentation. See, you can believe God exists, you can believe that God is one, you can believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, you can believe that Jesus performed miracles, you can even believe Jesus is the Son of God, and it's not going to get you anywhere into heaven. 
See, the, the, the facts you have to believe are that Jesus died as a substitute for your sins. And if you don't believe that, then nothing, you can believe all kinds of true facts about Jesus, but they're not the saving facts about Jesus. And so what, you always have people come up with this, uh, James 2.19 passage that the demons, demons also believe. Now another thing that you'll often discover is that in, in, in discussing this is people say, well, so and so just has a professing faith. What's a professing faith? Well, let me show you. I can only find one place where people consistently go, a couple of places where people consistently go to prove that uh, you can be- simply believe Jesus uh, is the Messiah. You can believe on him and not be saved. So turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and the passage they go to is John 2.23. Now, what has just happened is that Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding uh, feast in Cana in the first 12 verses, and then he's back in, in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he cleanses the temple. And then we're told in verse 23, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. And there we have this phrase in the Greek. Very important phrase for John. It's the Greek verb pistuo and the preposition ace, P-I-S-T-E-U-O, and the preposition ace. And sometimes it's translated believe that. Sometimes you'll have another preposition here, which is the preposition hati, which is usually translated that, or pistuo ace is translated believe. Now, sometimes people want to make a difference. So you can believe in, if you believe that Jesus, you're not saved, but if you believe in Jesus, you are saved. Well, if you do an analysis of all the places in the Gospels where you have the phrase pistuo ace in comparison with pistuo hati, they're interchangeable. And that means that semantically, that means in terms of the basic meaning of the phrase, believing in and believing that are the same thing. They're synonymous. They, they mean you can't draw a distinction between the two. Well, what John says in verse 23 is many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. Now, what will happen is your lordship crowd will come along and say, well, see what Jesus' response was in verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And commit's really a bad translation there because guess what word we have there? We have the word pistuo. It's not commit. Pistuo, trust, doesn't mean commit. Jesus did not trust himself to them. Because he knew all men. The point is, they say, if they were really saved, I love the tone of voice. If they were really believers, Jesus would have trusted them. Well, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of believers I don't trust. Now, you always find the naive. See, it always seems like the naive person gets sucked into this kind of stuff. It's the same kind of mentality evidenced by, I don't know why. You know, he was such a strong believer, and now he's such a screw-up. I don't know how he was ever saved. Well, you're extremely naive. You're the same kind of person that's going to get sucked into buying a Christian Yellow Pages and just open it up and pick any mechanic that's in there to work on your car that and figure that because he's a believer, he's going to do a good job and he's going to be honest. I'll tell you what, when, when, when I want somebody to work on my car or I want a doctor to work on my body, I don't care whether they're going to end up in heaven or hell. I just want to make sure they're a good mechanic or a good doctor, and I'm not going to end up in heaven before I ought to. And see, Jesus didn't trust himself to them because although they're saved, they haven't had their thinking renovated by any teaching, and they still think that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's going to bring in a political kingdom, and they're going to use him for their own political agenda. And that's why Jesus doesn't trust them, is because they might be saved, but they're still stupid. And see, what has to happen is some, some renovation there. So in this phrase, it says, many believed in him, pistuo ace, and that's the same phrase we have in passages like John 3.16, whoever believes in him uh, should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. 
John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Everywhere else that you have the phrase pistuo ace in, the, in John, it always means that the person is saved. So what they want to do is base salvation not on the principle of faith, but on the principle of behavior. And behavior is not a clue to salvation. That's the point in my initial analogy. Another passage that is used to suggest that there is a... See, let's understand this term, a spurious faith or a false faith, a false profession. Now, to me, that's an extremely confusing term and one that's easy to suck in, get us sucked in because we all know that there are people who think they are Christians and they aren't. They think they're Christians because they're involved in some, they're a member of a certain church. They think they're a Christian because they're involved in ritual. They think they're a Christian because they've been baptized. They think they're a Christian for all kinds of reasons except faith alone and Christ alone. But they believe they're a Christian. Now that's not a false faith. That's a false understanding of Christian, what makes you a Christian. But the concept of a false faith that they're using is that somebody can say and mean, I believe in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, and they're not saved. Because it's a false faith. See, it's a, that's why it comes back to that two different kinds of faith. You can have a, a normal, everyday kind of faith in Jesus, but it's not saving. That's what, that's what they would say you have in John 2.23. Or... Or they would say that, that you don't have that special saving faith, which is a gift of God. So how do you know whether you have the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill faith, which doesn't save you, versus the faith that does save you? Ah, by your fruits you'll know them. And we don't have time this morning to go into it, but if you go back and look at that passage, the word fruit can refer to all kinds of different things. It can refer to somebody's Lifestyle, it can refer to some, and it can refer to what somebody teaches. And in the context of by fruits you shall know them, it's talking about false teachers, and the point of the fruit there is not the way they live, but what they say. And the way you identify as false teachers is by the false doctrine that's coming out of their mouth. So, you don't have this double layer of faith, one kind that saves and one kind that doesn't save. Now let's look at John 8.30. John 8.30, Jesus, has been teaching, and he says, uh, John says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Same phrase again, pistuo ways. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, verse 31, if you abide in my word, and you are my disciples indeed. Notice, they're already saved, they believe in him, and then he says to them, in addition, if you abide in my word, which we've seen in our studies at Term for Fellowship, you are my disciples indeed. So see, a disciple is something more in this passage than just being a believer. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then verse 33, they answered him. See, he's talking to a crowd. In that crowd there are Jews who believed, and he speaks to those Jews who believed him in verse 31. But there are others in the crowd who are Pharisees who don't believe him. And they are the ones that are speaking in verse 33. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say, Do you ever commit sin as a slave of sin? And further on, he says, in verse 40, he, uh, he said, You are of your father, the devil. Uh, that's in verse... Um, 44, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of father you want to do. So obviously, these are not believers. But what you'll often find is someone who tries to argue that uh, those who believed in him in verse 30 and who believed him in verse 31 uh, are not believers by the time you get down to verse 42. But that's not true. It's a large group, and there's... He speaks to a segment of the group that believes and addresses them in terms of the commitment uh, to discipleship. But the others are the ones who do not believe, and they're the ones who react. Believing in Jesus, notice, in verse 30, it's pistuo ace, but in verse 31, it's those Jews who believed him, just pistuo autan. So believing him is the same as believing in him, which is the same as believing that he died on the cross for our sins. That is what it means 
to believe. Belief is not commitment. Belief is not surrendering to Jesus. Belief is not having a certain feeling or emotion. Belief is not necessarily indicated by a certain type of lifestyle or fruit. Remember, fruit only comes from a mature plant. That's another problem that that uh, enters into this is that many people in lordship think that anything is fruit, but the scripture is clear that fruit is what comes from maturity, not a brand new baby believer. Don't confuse growth with fruit. Growth is not automatic. There is, on the basis of the parable of the sower in, in Luke, the idea that the seed that falls on rocky soil does sprout. There is a sign of life, but that's what comes from a germinated seed and is simply regeneration. That is a sign of life, but it may not be perceptible to anyone but God. But that's not fruit. Belief is the key, as John articulates again in 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you, and what he's talking about is what he has just said in verses 6 to 12 about the testimony. These things I have written to you who believe, that's they already believe in the name of the Son of God. They are already saved, and now he says that you may know that you have eternal life as a present possession and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. See, that was the problem, is the false teachers were saying that Jesus really isn't the Son of God, and John is writing to them, you believe you're still saved, but you need to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And it's not simply a doctrinal thing. It's not just saying, okay, I still believe in the deity of Christ. That's not it. It is that in... They understand that in terms of the hypostatic union, it is that function of Jesus Christ in his humanity in reliance upon God the Holy Spirit that he is able to live the Christian life, which is the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. And if you, if you don't continue to understand that implication, then you will fail in the spiritual life and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. But the question that we have addressed this morning is, what is saving faith? Saving faith is agreement. It is assenting to the real, the truth of the proposition. It is an inward conviction. Calvin said it was a sure and certain knowledge. Now, that's certainly not what his followers have made it to say, made it to mean. It is a knowledge, a certainty, a conviction that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and for your sins individually. And if you believe that, then you're saved. And if you don't, you're not saved. An assurance of salvation comes not from evidence in the life, but from the promise of God in the Scriptures. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word. We pray that if anyone here is unsure of their eternal life and uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches very clearly that the only issue at salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of good deeds. It's a matter of simply trusting that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to further understand and that as a result of this morning we would have a clearer understanding of what it means to believe and that it can help us in our clarity in presenting the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.